Good morning to you again. This is week two of this series we began last week called For Tyler. As we look at, and we really deal with and ask the question, what are you for? As we said last week, you live in a world where everyone is against everything. And, and one thing that is certain when you interact with people is there are certain things that they're against and they have opinions and things that they want you to know. And it's really easy to figure out what it is that people are against. But the more important question is what are you for? Because it's possible that what you're against has the capability to blind you to what you actually live for and what your purpose is in this world. And so what you said last week as we began this series that our desire is not to be the best church in Tyler, Texas. But our desire is to be the best church for Tyler, Texas. That we would make an incredible impact on the people that live around us. Whether it's us as a church, communally, or in our neighborhoods, in our homes, and the people that actually live next door. Quite a few years ago, a, a group of church leaders got together in a suburb of um, Colorado, and they went to their mayor and they asked, what is it that would make the biggest impact in our city? And the mayor thought for a few minutes, and he looked back at this group of church leaders and he said, if people would learn to be better neighbors, our communities, our cities would be better and safer. Because it's a proven fact that when people know the people that live around them and they have relationship with their neighbors, there is less crime, there is less drama, there is less domestic violence. All of those things that we look at in our world and say there is a problem, all of those are reduced when we learn to be good neighbors. And we live in a world of privacy fences and garage door openers where it's possible to drive down the street of your house and live in close proximity to people but not actually be neighbors, not actually know the people that you live around. And the, this morning, I want to kind of look at that and ask that question, do you know your neighbors? Do you, do you know your neighbors in the neighborhood that you live in? Do you know the neighbors... Um, that you share offices with? Do you know neighbors when you go to the stores in our community? Do you know? What if the answer to some of the biggest societal issues that we face today could be helped tremendously by simply learning to love and live with the people that we live next door to? And so Jeremiah has written this letter to these exiles, and we kind of introed that last week to how this church got in, or how these people, this, this tribe of Judah had gotten into exile. And so he writes this letter to this tribe of Judah, and he tells them also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That you 
are called to be for your city. The, the place that God has planted you, we've talked about last week, believing that God has planted us here for a purpose. That you are to be for the people that live around you. So last week we talked about what it looks like to be for our city. And today, what does it look like to be for our neighbor? And this is all a part of our vision as a church as we move towards 2030. That we would be a church that exalts Christ, that worships him, that loves him with all that we have, that encourages one another, and then a church that engages our neighbor. And we said we want to be a church that engages our neighbors just here where God has placed this building, where we gather on a weekly basis, but also engaging our neighbors in our neighborhoods, the people that live next door to you, the people that you work with, the people that you encounter when you go to the store, when you interact around town, that we would learn to be good neighbors. It brings up the question, how well do you know your neighbors? Not just this is the, the guy who is over-obsessed with his yard, or that's the crazy soccer mom with an annoying kid, but do you really know what's going on in their life? Do, do you know how their health is? Do you know how their family is doing? Do you know if they're lonely or if they're looking for friendship? A lady in a Missouri suburb came home one afternoon from work to find this note attached to her front door. And it said, Miss, would you consider to become my friend? I'm 90 years old, live alone. All my friends have passed away. I am so lonesome and scared. Please, I pray for someone. Now, we know that person lives in Missouri. But is it possible that same person lives next door to you? Is it possible that that person works next to you or teaches across the hall or sits in the lunchroom by themselves every day? Do you see the people around you? And do you believe that God has placed them around you and that you have a purpose in their life? So if we're going to be for our neighbor, we ask the question, then, who is my neighbor? And it's a question that I'm just going to make the assumption you've heard this story that Jesus tells. It's a parable he tells in the Bible. And whether you've been in church or not your whole life, you have probably heard this story mentioned. And so I just kind of want to walk through it. But these teachers, these Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they ask, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus Ask them, what's the greatest commandment? And they say, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes, that is correct. Do this and you will live. But it says the teacher of the law wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a parable. He tells a parable of a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho a very common road that many people would have known, many people would have tra traveled on. And as he's traveling, he falls into the hands of robbers, he's beaten, he's robbed, and he's left basically laying on the side of the road half dead. And in Jesus' story, this priest comes by, 
And it says he passes by on the other side. Now, if you know anything about this road, and I've shown you a picture of this before, but this road is incredibly narrow. It's on the side of a cliff. There's not much room. And so for someone to pass by on the other side basically means to step around. And I think in Jesus' mind, there's probably a little bit of humor in this. We know that road. We know there's not another side to that road. It's all one way. It's very narrow. So a priest passes by and does not give help. A Levite passes by. And my assumption is in hearing this story, this teacher of the law knows the law very well. And laws that say for a priest and Levite, you cannot touch anyone with blood. And if you do, you're going to have to go through this ceremonial cleaning. And so it is possible that the priest and the Levite walk by this man who is beaten and left half dead with the greatest concern for them in his heart. Saying, I wish I could, but I love God too much to actually help you. I cannot defile myself. And then the story takes a turn because for the priest and the Levite, they would imagine that someone else in their tribe is going to pass along. Another Jew, an Israelite, someone from the tribe of Judah, that one of those would be the hero of the story that stops to render aid. But no, it's the Samaritan. And a Samaritan in this culture was hated by the Jews. Someone that they could not see eye to eye with. Someone they could not get along. That was considered someone who turned their back on God and turned their back on Israel and went off during exile and just married whoever and they were looked down upon and despised. And then Jesus turns to the teacher of the law and he asks him this question, which one of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who was hurt? And I think his answer is so telling. Because he doesn't say, oh, it's the Samaritan. He says, no, it was the one who had mercy on him. And my thinking is the Samaritan is hated so bad that the man, the teacher of the law, could not even bear to speak a good word about a Samaritan. And so in this story, that Jesus tells. The neighbor is the person who is most distant from you spiritually, emotionally, economically, racially. It, it's the person that if they were invited to sit at your table, you would not want to go. And it brings up the question for us, who is the person, if they were invited into your home, if you were invited to sit at the table and eat with, who would you refuse to have fellowship with? But let's be honest. There's probably not a whole lot of those that you're actually going to come in contact with. Because for the most part, the people around you look like you, act like you, talk like you, probably economically pretty close to where you are, politically, because they're the people that we, and let's just face it, East Texas is not that different, not very diverse a lot of times, that a lot of us are kind of in the same general vicinity. 
But what about the people that we look down on? What about those that we encounter every single day that we don't want to take the time for? Because this story of the Good Samaritan brings up some obstacles, two really big obstacles that seem to get in our way. And both of these obstacles are driven by what if. And the first obstacle is fear. What if I get involved? What if I stop and help this person and it's just a trap and I fall into the hands of the robbers? What, what if I stop and help and I'm late for what I need to be at? What, what if I get involved and I get hurt because of it, physically, emotionally, spiritually? And the second obstacle is time. What if I am late for what I need to be at? Anyone ever said that? I would love to stop and help you, but I got to get to church. I've got to get to work. I've got to get home to my family. What if it costs too much? And these obstacles driven by what if can be huge roadblocks. But I want to prod a little bit deeper. I want to dive a little bit deeper into this neighbor question. And Jesus tells another story, one that he's caught up in. It's recorded in John's Gospel. And it says in chapter 8 of verse 2, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. It says next, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They bring her in because they've caught her in the act. But there's a purpose in this going on. They made her stand before the group. And imagine this. They catch her, and they bring her in in front of everyone. I would imagine probably not many clothes on if she had the opportunity to grab something to cover up, if they really did catch her in the act. But regardless, they bring her in, they parade her through the streets, and they put her in front of everyone in the temple where Jesus is teaching. It says, and, Jesus, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Going on. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. We, we know the law well. We know what it says, and in the law it says that someone who commits adultery must be stoned. And they ask a really pointed question to Jesus. Now, what do you say? Because they brought her here for a purpose. And it goes on and says, they were using this question as a trap. But understand, they aren't just using a question as a trap. They are using a person as a trap. They are using a person who is broken and hurting and embarrassed and shameful. 
and they are using her. It's not just a question that they are using. They are using a person. In order, in order to have a basis for accusing him. And we've talked numerous times that there are two spirits that seem to be in this world. There is the spirit of Christ that is the spirit of a counselor or a comforter or a helper. But there is also the spirit of Satan, accusation, and blame. And it's that spirit that is present through these men who are using this woman, not just simply to accuse her, but now to accuse Jesus as well. But Jesus said, going on, sorry. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, just, just for a second, he bends down with their accusations at her and accusations at him with these questions that they're using as they're using her, Jesus, in the midst of all the mess and all of the yelling and all the fighting and all of the accusations, bends down. And he starts to write on the ground. And he said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Could you imagine being in the crowd? Can, could you imagine being the one who's bringing the accusations? Could, could you imagine being the one who's there in the middle of everything and sorry for what you did, wishing you could take it back and broken because you can't? And Jesus stands up. And he looks at the woman. And he says to all the accusers, if any of you is without sin, you throw the first stone. And then again, he bends down on the ground and starts to write. And it says at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. They've all had to leave. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Where is everyone who had the accusations? Where is everyone that was using you? Where was everyone that was trying to bring accusation against me? Where have they gone? Has no one condemned you? Is no one here still? Can no one speak? No one, sir, he said. Then neither do I condemn you. Now, we know that story. And we've heard it a lot of different times, I'm sure. And we can put ourselves in, but I wonder what it would have looked like to be there. Hey, Doug, can I borrow you again? I wonder what it would have looked like 
to be a part of the crowd that day. I can get this undone. Were you a Boy Scout? Okay, well, that's not going to help us. <laughs> there we go. Um, if, if you weren't here last week, Doug um, is our representative Kingdom of Darkness guy. <laughs> I really do love Doug, and I don't, as I said, I don't think you're the dark prince of the underworld. Mike, I'm not going to borrow you this week. Your holiness and righteousness is kind of, can I borrow you, Barbara? Can I borrow you? Now, what we're about to say is no way a reflection of Barbara. I love her, but there's a woman caught in adultery. <laughs> you want to grab that rope? And, and we, we know this is not true of Barbara. This is just an illustration, okay? And there's this, this moment where this woman is caught in the very act of adultery. And you see this playing out already in her life as the kingdom of darkness is pulling against her. And here's where you think, man, the people of God are going to come to the rescue. And they don't. Can I borrow you too? Come on, Noel. There's this group of people that show up. And instead of saying, you know what, we're going to go this way. Let's, let's go this way a little bit. Instead of pulling, can you pull OL a little bit? Instead of pulling this way and pulling for her, they start to pull against her and start to drag her along with them. Okay, let's not get too far down the road. <laughs> because something really powerful happens. Because this woman in the crowd where everyone is accusing her and everyone is saying, we want nothing to do with you. You don't need to be a part of us. You cannot be forgiven. Who's out here in front of everyone and the very people who claim to be the people of God who should be stepping up and pulling as hard as they can for her are actually pulling against her. And Jesus steps into the middle of this story with this person who is hurting and abused and broken at the most vulnerable time of her life. And he says, no, we're not going there. We're going to pull for her as hard as we can in the other direction. And he says, if any of you are without sin, you can let down the rope and you can stop pulling because this woman matters. And it says one by one. They all drop the rope. As Jesus starts pulling, not just against the kingdom of darkness, but pulling for this woman. One that I think he would have said, this person is my neighbor. And I dearly and deeply love her. Listen, for so long, our churches have stood in the midst of this tension and pulled against people. And I'm not just talking, I know it's happened before at Shiloh, but it happens 
across every group, every church, we have the tendency to do this. When what we're called to do is to say, I am for you. Because you are made and created in the image of God. And I'm going to pull for you as hard as I can. Whatever you got going on, I'm in. I'm going to help. I'm going to pull with everything I have. And it might cost me. It might cost me my time. It might cost me money. It might cost me my reputation. But I'm in. And I'm going to pull with all I have. Thank you. Thank you all. What would it look like if our churches were places that came up alongside people who were hurting and just simply said, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what the embarrassment is like. I don't know what the shame is like. I don't know what the pain is like. But we are in this with you. Because in this story, I think one of the things that we miss is there is a beautiful woman in this story. Not, not just physical looks or anything like that, but a, a woman who is given this image of God and has this purpose of, of being a light in this world, of reflecting God's goodness to this world. That, that when people saw her, they would say that person is made in the image of God. Because every single person you ever meet, we can say that one thing about them. They bear the image of God. He was made in their image, and they matter. And we are not able to turn our back on them. We have to grab hold and pull with all we have. But what happens in this story is her brokenness becomes magnified because these people are so consumed with themselves. And you have this lady in this story who has these broken pieces. They're on full display for everyone to see. And the thing is that she's not that different than us. Because every single one of us looks like this. The only difference is we haven't been caught in it. And I think so many times we sit here and say, yeah, everything's great. Look at me. Because we don't think people can see through the brokenness. And Jesus in the story calls them out on it. Stop, stop standing there pretending like you aren't broken, like you aren't hurting, like everything's okay in your life. Stop playing the game. Stop pretending you have it all together. Because what I can tell you, if you come to this church, we will not judge you for your past. We will walk beside you and help you. And we will say things like Jesus says to the woman, go and leave your life of sin. We will say, we want you to leave death behind you. We, we want you to step out of these patterns and we want you to step into this new life in Christ because we believe God cares for you and passionately wants the best for you. And do not give in to the temptation of judging people because they are where you used to be. 
This lady with all of her brokenness, Jesus comes to her. And he doesn't say, hey, I want to just kind of fit this all back together. He comes back and says, okay, here's all the mess and everyone can see it. But what I want to do is not just fix the mess. I want to start over. I want to clean up what's broken. And I want this person to become this new creation. See, here's the thing. That we all stand here like this. But all of us have been here as well. And we cannot forget that. I think so many times we try to trick people into thinking that we have it all together. And there are no problems here. Listen, we are not perfect. We are broken and we are in need of Jesus just like everyone else. And so many times what we, the message we give people is of accusation and blame when it needs to be of grace. Listen, if it does not sound like good news, it is not the gospel. Because the gospel is not a story about bad people becoming good. The gospel is a story about dead people being made alive. And there is a dramatic difference in the two. God didn't just come to alter your behavior. He came to change your life radically and forever so that your life would be different. And he called you as one of those that has been made alive to grab hope, hold of the rope, grab hold next to other people and pull with all you have because they matter, because they are made in the image of God, because they have a story and their story matters because their story is God's story of how he is reconciling and redeeming all things. Church, we cannot forget our story. See, Jeremiah goes on a little bit later in this, exile, in this letter to these exiles to say this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and I will find you when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. And I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And so many times we hear that as people use it out of context, talking about just individuals. But what he's talking to here is a group of people who are broken and hurting and lost. And not sure what tomorrow looks like. And he says to that group of people, I have plans for you. 
plans so that when this 70 years is old, over, if you'll get in and live among the people and you'll settle down and you'll seek peace and prosperity in the city, then when you leave here, this city will be different because of you. And I think we see in this letter that God is for you. And as a church, we are for you. And we are with you. Regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've gone through, regardless of your past, because your story is our story. It's a story of brokenness and restoration, of hopelessness and healing. It is a story of a God who is making all things new. So, what would it look like if we as a church literally loved our neighbors? So, at the Welcome Center this morning when you leave, there's a block map. And it has the people that live around you. And it has a little place for you to write their name and a little information about them. This is the greatest time of the year to go next door. It's so easy to bake a loaf of bread, or if you don't bake bread, go grab a, you know, break and bake cookies from Walmart. Anyone can do that without messing it up, I think. Or go buy some from the bakery and walk next door to your neighbor's house and knock on the door and say, hi, I'm Gary. I live next door. I brought you a gift. I can promise you it will do wonders and if you keep showing up in their life, it will make a difference. Hey, is everything going okay in your life? Is there any way that I can pray for you? Because your neighbor might be Wanda from Missouri who's saying, you know what, I'm lonely and I don't have anyone at all. And I've been praying for someone to show up and maybe God will make you the person that they have been praying for. Maybe you will be the answer to their prayers. So a couple of stories real quick as we kind of wrap up. When we got done last week, um, Janet Parker came up to me, and she said, hey, I go to the same grocery store every week, and I buy my groceries there. And we met a, yo a young mother there who was pregnant and who didn't really have anyone. And so we kind of started talking to her. And we went to our small group, and we said, hey, we want to help her in some way somehow. And their group is circling around this young to-be mother and simply saying, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know we are for you. And we're going to help you in some way, somehow. And I promise you, God will use their willingness to help. A few months ago, I shared a story about my friend Dan Whitaker. I worked with Dan for a few years, and after retirement, he went to work for Walmart. This was the last time I actually saw Dan alive. He was at Walmart, and he was working, and he said, hey, um, I said, Dan, how are you doing? He goes, I'm doing great. He's on this scooter because he just had hip surgery. He said, I'm doing great. They got me working security. <laughs> like, fearsome. But, but go to this next picture of Dan. <clears throat> This is a picture that the Cleveland Times Review, their newspaper, took of Dan. 
And three years ago, they wrote a story about Dan in the newspaper. And it says, and this is kind of excerpts from it, when the checkout lines are long and the last item you need was just snatched off the shelf, it's easy to become a grumpy shopper. But a welcoming door greeter at the Cleburne Walmart makes sure every one of his customers has a pleasant experience. He goes far beyond the simple hello and goodbye when you enter the store. He says things like, fill this buggy and come back and get another. Or this buggy has warm handles. Or I might tell a couple, either one of you may ride, but not both. I'd always said that being a door greeter at Walmart is something they give grandma to keep her off the streets. But it's honorable work, and I thoroughly enjoy it. One of his managers says he is basically what Walmart wants all of our employees to be, to be focused on, and that is the customer service, she said. I've seen customers stand in his line for 45 minutes just to hear his joke of the day. And I can tell you from being in Cleburne, his line was always the longest line in the store. They could have easily gotten in another into a shorter line and been in and out of the store quicker, but they wanted to see Dan. He didn't know this, but a group of citizens in the community created a Facebook page for Mr. Dan. And a group of people got together to give him a tip, which Walmart does not allow their cashiers and greeters to have. So the man waited and met him in the parking lot and gave him an envelope. And Dan graciously said thank you and gave it to a children's hospital. Now, you think like, okay, what, what's the big deal about a 90-year-old man working at Walmart? Dan Whitaker passed away last week. And I went to his funeral in Burleson. And of the crowd that was probably about 200 people, about a fourth of them were wearing these Walmart greeter vests. And there were people from age 70 all the way down to 18. Tell me, when in the world does an 18-year-old kid who's been working at Walmart for a few months ever decide, I'm going to go to a funeral of a 91-year-old, 92-year-old door greeter? But Dan loved people, and he made a difference. And the last one I want to talk about is a guy here, Louis Ard. And Friday night, we cheered and we celebrated with a group of Highway 80 Triumph Village graduates who have been sober for months, who have been through this program, and who are moving on to bigger and better things. And it's a testimony to what Jesus is doing in this world. But it's also a testimony to someone who simply said, I don't know what else I can do, but I am for you. And I will help you in any way that I can. I will pick you up. I will get people to feed you. I will do whatever we want to be in. And there's a group from Highway 80 Triumph Village that comes here every Wednesday night. 
and a group that comes every Sunday morning just simply because people like Lewis Ard said, we are going to love you, we are for you, and we are in this together. What could it look like? So I want to give you real quick as we go, three cues to listen for. Three cues. Is God putting someone in my path? Here's three cues. First one, I'm not from here. I've just moved to town. We don't know anyone. I'm not from here. Hey, you should come to our church. We have a church that welcomes people and loves, but you should come to church with us. Things are not going well. Man, we, we just got this rent notice and we don't know what we're going to do. Hey, you should come to our church. We, we help people. We just got this diagnosis or I just lost my spouse. You should come to our church. Things are not going well and we walk alongside people. I'm not sure what to do. I don't know what the next move is. I don't know what comes next. What I do know is I'm scared. I'm afraid. You should come to our church. Could you imagine? Could you imagine what a difference it could make in this world if a church really got a hold of that vision with people? That above all else, we are for you, and we will do whatever we can to walk alongside you. Father, today, um, Father, I know there are some in this room who sit in the place of brokenness and they relate to this woman. They relate to her and they see and feel like everything and everyone is pulling against them. But Father, I, I want them to know that here in this place, we are for them and we will pull alongside them with everything that we have. And Father, for those of us who share in that story, and we've come out seemingly on the other side. Father, we know there's going to be more valleys. There's going to be more difficult times. But, Father, we have been through the hard times, and we've come out resurrected because you are king of this world, and you are making everything new. And we've walked through the waters with you, and, Father, you have raised us to new life. And so, Father, help us. Give us a vision to see people as you see them. And, Father, help us to grab hold of the rope with all that we have and pull as hard as we can Father, no matter what it costs us, so that people know we are for them. Father, I believe if we will grab hold of that vision, this church will be a different place because we will be a church that is for Tyler. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.